Hello, and if you've just switched on your radio, welcome. From Midori House, it's Emma Nelson here, and you're with Monocle Weekends. But in a moment, we zip over to Zurich to join our editorial director and friends for Monocle on Sunday. Tyler Brule is standing by. Then at 11am, time for Monocle on Culture with a photography feature this week. But first, a quick look at the headlines. China's President Xi Jinping has told the Communist Party Congress that his country has achieved comprehensive control over Hong Kong, turning it from chaos to governance. In his speech marking the opening of the once-in-a-five-year gathering in Beijing, she also defended his controversial zero-Covid strategy as an all-out people's war to stop the spread of the virus. A fire has broken out at Iran's notorious Evin prison, with footage posted online showing flames and smoke billowing from the area. Gunshots, explosions and alarms have been reported. The prison mostly holds detainees facing security charges, including Iranians with dual nationality. It was blacklisted by the US government in 2018 for serious human rights abuses. A man has died and a woman is missing after their car was carried away in flash floods on the Greek island of Crete. The Greek fire brigade said they recovered the man from a vehicle that had been washed into the sea after torrential rain at the village of Achiapelaya in the region of Heraklion. And the British tabloid paper, The Daily Star, says it's had 50,000 views in the first five hours of footage of a photograph of the UK Prime Minister Liz Truss placed next to an unrefrigerated iceberg lettuce. The newspaper, which has given the lettuce a pair of eyes and a blonde wig, has pitted the Prime Minister in a race against the lettuce, asking readers to decide which one will last longer. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. 9.02 here in London. It is time to head to Zurich where it's 10.02, just gone 10.02 and it's the morning after a lovely evening, isn't it? Our editorial director, Tyler Brule. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Emma. <laughs> as, as, as you giggle. Yes, indeed. Uh, we are, of course, in the, the same space, the, the audio space, the radio lounge where this program always comes from. But only hours ago, it was the scene of a, a pop-up restaurant, maybe even a mini disco. Ah, now, what, what do you want to tell us about first? The pop-up restaurant? <laughs> Should we start with the restaurant? We'll start with the pop-up restaurant, which we ran uh, for uh, two evenings. So Friday, Saturday uh, night, it was uh, open to around uh, 40, uh, well, not just Monocle subscribers, but of course, uh, people uh, who are readers who get our newsletters, who are regulars uh, here at the cafe. We had a fantastic chef uh, from Hokkaido, who I'm very happy to report is making his way to London. So it was a bit of an intercept moment that we had here in Zurich, and uh, now he'll be touching down in London. This may very well be repeated at Midori House, Emma. Cannot wait. Uh, and the disco, I do have to ask about the disco. <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, 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 the disco was impromptu. It was, of course, part of, uh, well, I well, obviously, it was actually probably a bonus, in fact. Uh, it wasn't just uh, part of the cover charge. It was an added extra. Uh, and there was probably a hardcore of uh, probably ha- half of those guests uh, stayed on uh, r- rather late. And I can I can say that, uh, yeah, it was rather close to this microphone only a few hours ago. Ah, okay. And everything fueled by Japasta. Everything fueled by Japasta, which is, a, we, we want to trademark the term because uh, we should just explain very quickly that uh, the chef Hanawa-san uh, has, has really been running some of the best uh, Italian restaurants, uh, at least on the kitchen side anyway, uh, in, in Tokyo and Hokkaido, uh, and has a sort of a, a very, very special take uh, on, on Italian food. Not sort of, you know, completely overdone uh, in any way. Uh, you would recognize all the dishes, but of course, with a few interesting Japanese ingredients. Well, there'll be some people in London with 
with uh, tummies empty, bowls empty and a chalked dance floor ready for you for this week, Tyler. Excellent. Emma will be talking to you uh, in uh, what about 26 minutes. Monocle on Sunday starts now. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up over the next hour, my guest today, Bennett Zog is here, also Priska Amstutz. And they've got a, probably an eye or two on the big stories of the weekend. But Benno is here first. He's around the microphone looking very fresh this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Yes, indeed, some of the very big topics around its great power politics, about the great power of China and the party congress, about a, well, less great than ever power like Russia that one could talk about. So no shortage there. Very good. A little bit of a discussion from Beijing. We'll also be getting the latest news from Finland. Russian drones over Norway, Sweden gets a new government, and how to sober up faster. I'm Monocle's Helsinki correspondent, Petri Burtsov, and I'll be bringing you the latest news from the Nordic region. And then the editorial director of Zeit magazine, Christoph Ament, will be telling us what's, of course, in his pages. Plus, we'll find out more about the mood at the Freeze Art Fair. It's the 16th of October, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. Good morning from a rather sunny, um, it's a little bit damp morning uh, here in Zurich, but the spirits are high, uh, certainly busy uh, in the walls beyond uh, at the cafe. I'm very happy to say, as you heard at the start of the program, Benno Zog is here. Also, Priska Amstutz is here, uh, editor-in-chief of the Tagus Anzeiger. Benno, you started the menu, might as well start with you now. Uh, how have things been. Uh, we'll maybe go into the big stories, but uh, how's the world of Benno, I guess, most importantly? <laughs> Everyone's wondering. The world of Benno is quite all right, even though it was a gorgeous view when I cycled here towards um, a Monocle Cafe. But Zurich is quite quiet these days, but I appreciate that. It makes more time to look at the papers where all these great power stories are, are very present. I had a glance through about five of them, and everyone talks about essentially China, um, that we always talk about. It's always the elephant in the room um, when it comes to international relations these days. Uh, China's getting more authoritarian. They talk about the emperor, um, to quote the Financial Times, that is Xi Jinping. So it's uh, quite interesting, quite striking. Mm, indeed. I was going to ask Priska, uh, what's it like, of course, running one of the big newspapers of, of record right now? When this city empties out, there's something remarkable about the school holidays in this country because it really quietens down. I mean, you can see it in the the numbers, the daily takings or, no, or not takings uh, at the cafe and, and elsewhere. Are you on a skeleton staff in the Tagus Anzeiger yes. newsroom? <laughs> yes, we are. Everyone who has a child in school uh, takes a autumn holiday. Um, I heard uh, last year, I think uh, Zurich Airport is also the busiest on the first Saturday of the autumn holidays, even busier than in the summer holidays. I don't know if that's true this year, but I think last year this was the case. So uh, we are very few. I was away also <laughs> in the mountains a few days last week. So I didn't get to run the paper this week. So. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, it, it, seemed, it seemed to be, of course, uh, being loaded up uh, on our newsstand here. So it's, it's getting... It's it's getting out the door. Uh, also, Andrew Tuck, uh, our editor-in-chief, is in London this morning. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler. And um, you sound very fresh of voice for somebody who had such a, a nice big night. 
Well, actually, can I say you don't sound so fresh of voice, uh, but, but uh, I, I hope there was a perky evening in London for, for Andrew Tuck on a Saturday evening, though. I had a very nice evening. I was invited to dinner by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and his partner because uh, Fernando got his British passport about three months ago. And as you know, Monaco was instrumental in backing up his, uh, his claims, first for permanent uh, the, the, the leave to remain, rather, and then to get his passport. So there was a little celebration. We just went for a small dinner to say he wanted to say thank you to Monaco for all, all of that. So uh, he lives right in the heart of Soho. Uh, you couldn't be more central London. And uh, it was a very jolly evening. So there, but there was no bossa bossa disco. Well, there was there, there there was a bit of a Gilberto Gil on the on, on the on the on the record player, but there was there was certainly no dancing. Okay, um, Andrew, it's it's um, been a rather uh, busy news week. It's not like that every week uh, in London, but uh, I want to sort of bring everyone uh, in, in on this. But of course, uh, what a Friday uh, to to be a, a newspaper editor. Also going into all of the weekend papers uh, as well. Of course, we had Emma's lovely story uh, about the head of lettuce uh, with the with the blonde wig, uh, and when what's going to last longer versus uh, Prime Minister uh, Trust. But maybe um, the editor in chief view uh, how, how you see this because it was fascinating to watch the pound the response of the markets uh, of course going uh, well going towards the close on on Friday but uh, how, how does it feel on a Sunday morning now Andrew well I think the markets were were indicative of how the country feels you know they were they were up they were down they didn't know which way to turn and I think that when you look at the the, the sober reflections in the newspapers uh, today I think the feeling is you know, that it's it's pretty much done for her because even if she re- manages to cling on, all of the things that she was voted by the constituents to do in, in, as a prime minister, to cut taxes, to go for growth, all, all of these things have now been sidelined because, as you say, the markets wouldn't accept it. And whether you agree with her policies or not, it's, it's fascinating to see that there is an orthodoxy that reigns in these situations. And you can't go within days up against the IMF, up against the markets, up, up against every trader, because they will punish you and they punished her brutally. So there's now already billions of pounds that needs to be found in cuts. And yesterday we had this extraordinary round of interviews by Jeremy Hunt, who's the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, where he appeared on radio and said, look, the the policies that we, you just had over the last 30 days were maybe okay, but they were certainly delivered too fast and in a way that, that was bound to spook the market. This has been this has been bad. We have messed up. And to clear up this mess, we're going to be asking every single department, including defence, to be making efficiencies, which is obviously another word for cuts over the, over the coming days. So. Uh, a terrible, terrible situation, and I don't think many people believe that she will uh, will survive much longer than that than that lettuce. Um, ben, it's, it's interesting when you hear about security cuts, uh, and, and at a time when we've seen so many uh, NATO nations obviously looking to step up to two percent plus in terms of military expenditure, uh, etc. Do you think that's going to be a rearranging of, of furniture? Because uh, on, on one side, we, we've seen obviously the UK playing a very strong, very central, or certainly certainly under uh, Boris's uh, leadership. Uh, what does what does that really mean? Uh, is that is that saying we're going to actually worry about the back office, maybe not uh, be so concerned about procurement of, of more missiles uh, and, and other material? It's actually, those are a tricky questions because the trend across NATO, across the West, across the world actually is 
to ramp up defence spending, and particularly the UK in the context of Ukraine has had this reputation and incredible popularity for moving fast, for being capable, for sending weapons quickly and for having and being willing to spend the money on that. Um, So that would certainly reverse the trend. One wonders if cuts are announced across all departments, across all ministries, whether they be mostly cosmetic or whether they actually affect some of the very, very expensive programs that one has. For example, when it comes to nuclear deterrence, but in a day and age when Russia is as aggressive uh, as it hasn't been in decades, one wonders if there's any room in, in that regard. But I guess the problem is not so whether one purchases 100 or 110 missiles or so, which makes a big difference in spending, but it's the whole a wider issue of whether you are somewhat predictable in your policies, whether you're reliable as an ally, um, whether your economy is vaguely working. And when it comes to all of that, Within the past weeks, this this new government has managed to destroy so much of at least the bit of reliability when it comes to hard foreign foreign and security policy that Boris Johnson has built, even though he was a bit of a clown in other matters, um, was fully destroyed. So my bets and my hopes are probably on the letters. Mm. Um, Priska, from the perspective of the Tagus Anzeiger, uh, a paper which is, as, as we said in the opening, you're a German language paper of, of record uh, in the country. You're, you're not quite national, but you are national. You're also very tied to Zurich, but of course you have your, your Ausländerdachsen, you have your, your foreign pages. H- how important uh, is this leadership story, but how important is, is Brand UK uh, to a Tagus Anzeiger reader? It is quite important because we have many uh people living here and company uh, companies working here so uh, it is quite important not so much uh, in the at the moment i feel we we don't get many feedback on on this topic but uh, but i think it's rather uh, rather important yes indeed and we're going to be talking a little bit about the relationship of of people who are expats uh, like you know maybe many people who come to this cafe uh, and elsewhere which is a bit of a, a hot topic uh, here at the moment um, and I just want to ask you so uh, what, what happens now so uh, of course if um, if mistrust does not uh, of course weather this uh, storm where, where where do we go next because it is remarkable isn't it we, we spent time on this well four, four years ago talking about the level of distraction that was going to hit the government at at every level in every ministry and and this is exactly what's happening now because how are you able to of course have an ongoing uh, well let's say leadership contest on one side and then try to focus on all of the other things if you just have to look at the the sunday times this morning and it just points out the catalog of course of, of different areas different ministries all the things they have to deal with at the moment so i know it's a big question for a sunday morning andrew but try to unpack it for us well, in practical terms, what it means is if she's ousted, they they can appoint another leader. The feeling is it could be Rishi Sunak. And then they, they would do it in a way that they only had one candidate and they didn't go out to the electorate. So it would just be done straight away. But there's no credibility left. So I think that even many senior Tories are saying it would have to be an election within within the next couple of months. Philip Hammond, the former Chancellor Exchequer, saying that this morning. Um, uh, Nadine Doris, a, a, a minister under Boris Johnson, has been saying for days there is no credibility left you 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 did not get voted in on this mandate you have to go back to the 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 public but i think for the what it means for britain and how 
that that gets negotiated is you have to remember that all of this is you know we're six years on we're, we're, we've got brexit done and all of these things are looked through that filter and when you look back at the things that were warned six years ago when all this was happening you, you understand why many people are, you know, are saying that actually this is a disaster born, born from brexit initially because nobody has known how to capitalize on what was supposedly the freedoms that came with that you know to set your own tax rate to open free ports none of that has had a, a dint on what goes on and i think it's fascinating you know, that it's it's just the distraction you know that if you're trying to come up with energy policies if you're trying to work on the environment if you're trying to have a defense policy that impresses around the world how can you do that when all you're doing is infighting so i think it's it's a very poor moment from, for britain and on on friday i met with somebody who's a, a director of a, a, a a leading um, bank and um, he said um, and uh, somebody not who, from the UK who said that all the meetings he'd been this week that Britain kept on being referred to as an emerging market and that's even if it was done as a joke the sense that Britain is now mocked in in leading discussions in boardrooms around the world is just awful and indeed, Andrew, it's it's uh, I think it's a term which is certainly gaining um, some level of currency because uh, I, I was also talking to some people from the financial community as well, and that same observation uh, that on, on so many levels uh, the country starts to behave uh, a little bit like like an emerging market uh, because people just see that the apparatus is is not fit. The other thing is as well, and I think this is the interesting thing when you look at having a new chancellor like Jeremy Hunt, who has of course no track record uh, in terms of, of managing uh, finances uh, of, of, of a nation. I'm sure he might do okay with uh, a Lloyd's or Barclays uh, bank account. Who knows? Um, but I was, we were also at this, this, this level of divide between, of course, people who are put into post and then also a team of very, very young, unqualified advisors. So an enormous gap uh, which, which exists um, in between. But then there's a parallel world, um, which is, of course, Andrew, you were, um, did a little spin uh, around the Freeze Art Fair uh, this week as well. So on one side, uh, you have, uh, you know, it, it feels like so many elements are crumbling. And then the world descending on London to, uh, of course, deploy vast amounts of money on art. And it was, and it, it finishes today. But it, it, these are the public days. But it it was giddy on on Wednesday, and certainly many of the the gallery owners I spoke to, they had sold every single thing on their stand within the first few hours, and that is is extraordinary. So, but it does fit into this narrative because lots of people said, look, if you've got cash at the moment and you don't know where to put it you know art remains a good place because at least you have something on your wall you have something that hopefully will rise and the art market has in many ways kind of uh, bucked bucked the markets in, in recent years and also I, I i'm intrigued because one one pr for a gallery uh, was saying that not his gallery but um, that he felt that also still a lot of Russian money that had been swirling around in Europe was finding a home in pictures and in art pieces which were then being stored until times got better. So even now you don't understand quite how all those deals happen. But it's a fascinating world because on the one side you have all these you know, rebellious uh, artists who are like questioning society. And on the other hand you just have so much money walking around those halls determined to buy things. And I, I, I told a short story in, a, in my column and I was speaking to a gallery owner and the guy just came pushing into that conversation and said, how much is that picture? How much is that picture? And she said, well, it was £125,000, but it sold. And he looked really crestfallen. He said, do you have another one? 
And she said, no. And he said, well, what about that one? And she said, well, that was £35,000, but that's also sold. And he just, it was like he was in a supermarket. And it, you, you, it's just extraordinary to see the money there. It's incredible. Uh, Andrew, just a little bit later in the program, and hopefully you'll be able to join uh, at about a quarter to the hour. We're going to uh, be joined by Aurelia Rauch uh, from Bergos Bank. Uh, she's an art advisor, also creative director for the bank. She's going to be talking about uh, some reflections uh, on that uh, as well. But I want to turn uh, to some other other stories as well. Priska, you said uh, you were up in the mountains. You're up in up in Flims. Uh, maybe a little bit of a reflection because this is the time of year we start to hear stories. We start to read things about what is the coming winter season going to to feel like and of course there's been this yeah this rather sort of magical period that not just switzerland i mean other <clears> countries <throat> as well uh whether it's austria whether it's northern italy ha- have enjoyed people rediscovering their own territory uh but uh what does that what does that mean for you yes it wasn't uh, as good a um moment at uh this week because firstly, there's a lot of construction going on in Flims. They are really believing in the future of ski tourism and rebuilding the, the mountain, the new, new, um, new gondolas. So this is interesting. But it, it uh, was on our walk. <laughs> it was like we crossed many building sites and it was a bit weird to have this on the mountain. <laughs> so and, and it's also the, the sort of the, the period as well. So aside from doing you know, big engineering and infrastructure, a lot of resort town, towns, villages, only allow you to build during a certain period as well because they don't want you disturbing the community when everyone's back up there. Yes, it's actually about two months where in May and in November no one's there, but this is not enough time to build. So it's a bit expanded, but they have to do a lot in a very short time. So, And I talked to some hoteliers there and... um, they don't have a good year this year. They didn't have a good summer. I think it's because the franc is so strong. So many people from abroad don't come, didn't come. A lot of people, Swiss people, rediscovered flying to the Mediterranean, of course. Also now, my Instagram account is full of pictures. Of just people in Greece and <laughs> yes. Spain and elsewhere. Yeah. So uh, I was quite alone on the mountain. Um, and then there's the fear of the coming winter. So um, there's also a new story I brought along in the Sonntagszeitung, our sister newspaper. So they are facing, of course, like all um, companies, a lot more um, costs for for electricity and oil and the um, Hotelier Association did a survey and half of the hotels in Switzerland say they are facing bankruptcy if they if, if it goes even further up so many in Flims especially um, many people bought electricity many many hotels sorry uh, bought electricity from local suppliers and these contracts end and it will go up and so they are quite nervous mm. in, uh, in this region at last yeah but as i said as well it is it i don't want to say it's a broken record but it, it's sort of the story of 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 the season and and this is what happens okay we're going to try to make a, a jump from flims uh, all the way over to, to beijing uh, now benno so so see if you can somehow build a bridge for that one uh, but of course, uh, we have uh, this rather um, extraordinary event, of course, all leadership membership, of course, descending on Beijing. You were talking about the FT's reference to sort of emperorship on the part of, of, of Xi Jinping. 
we take a step back from this, there's, there's, you know, there's a variety of different narratives that we see in papers right now that this is all going his way, uh, that you know, you know, finally sort of China can, you know, on one on one side, continue to be the factory for the world, but also when it comes to all of the maybe unfashionable uh, trends, identity, politics, all the things we deal with, you know, Beijing doesn't have to worry about that. And it's going exactly as, in, in a way, exactly to plan. Well, officially, yes, obviously, everyone's celebrating and clapping in unison at the party congress, because that's what these pseudo-democratic delegates are supposed to do. Um, but there's indeed big changes in the areas and institutionally. Since, I think, Mao Zedong, there's never been as powerful a leader formally as Xi Jinping will be when he enters his, his third term, which he's about to do, because who on earth could challenge him? Um, the whole idea that has made China so successful in a way, the idea of collective leadership, of meritocracy, um, is kind of out because the Politburo, whatever you may think of it, um, as a collective doesn't exist anymore. There's one leader now and apparatchiks essentially, which is inherently dangerous. And we see it in other such systems that become more and more personalized where one leader takes the decisions, but also cannot fail, cannot be wrong ever. So Xi Jinping can never abandon China's no COVID policy because once he's decided on it, it's the ultimate wisdom. The same way Vladimir Putin cannot back down from the war in Ukraine because he's decided on it. So he's just raising the bets, which is inherently dangerous, particularly for China. Um, and in an age where, well, energy is expensive, but that's not its biggest worry. Um, when there's unresolved territorial issues for which a paramount leader also needs to have a solution, even if it's military, um, when there's an economy that is hugely reliant on a construction sector constructing buildings for a, for a decreasing demographic, more flats than people. And all of that now with actually great power rivalry becoming more articulate as well. Um, just this week, the, the Biden administration announced restrictions on semiconductors being um, delivered to to China. There were previous ones on software, technology more generally and such. So this is pretty, quite quite a cocktail of, of dangerous factors and then at the same time having these leaders who cannot fail. Um, it's quite dangerous and one wonders, and Putin being the example of course, where this can all lead. That's why all eyes currently are on Beijing, on the party congress whose, well, outcome is already determined. Uh, Andrew, I just wanted to, uh, to bring you in on this because uh, you know we we have we've seen off the off the back, of course, um, of of the, the the funeral for for the Queen, etc. That uh, the UK got uh, two shiny new uh, Falcon jets uh, to send its uh, politicians, its diplomats uh, around the world. But as you were saying, we're in this moment of, of distraction, and it's it's curious, isn't it? Because you you know yes, we had uh, of course the former Chancellor was on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, had had to hustle back, but. UK's role on on the world uh, stage. You know, in a curious sense, you, you don't even see a lot of comment around around Beijing, around what's happening elsewhere. Do you think this becomes part of part of the reset, or or the reset is still probably are we six months of just focusing on domestic affairs as opposed to what Brand Britain should be also doing globally? Well, it was interesting that you know, Liz Truss you know, did go to this new European discussion group, as it were, you know, headed by Macron. I think there was a sense that Britain needs to get out there and, and tell its story. But I think you just saw how, just how embarrassing it was for 
Kwasi Kwarteng to be, be at the IMF for the, the comments from, uh, from the Biden administration saying that you know, we all saw that this was going to be a disaster. Everybody is really treating the British government as a bit foolish. And I think that to get back into those discussions, to set, you know, set the agenda on policy around foreign, foreign issues it is, is very difficult when you're in this moment. And you know, we were talking about Ukraine, that you know, Boris Johnson, it was a strength of his that he was very determined to be there with Zelensky whenever he needed him. And I think, again, you just feel that we're, we're, we're not such an important part of that, of that debate at the moment. I'm sure we're supplying arms as we promised. But being part of the conversation everywhere, we've cut ourselves out of that conversation. And it comes back again to this, this notion of Brexit. We took a decision there. We were going to be you know, going out. It was going to be global Britain. Well, that has just not worked out. You know, there is no hunger on the part of the US administration to have a trade deal. We now have this new trade deal with, a, with India already. There's some rowback on it. We've already offended the India because we, we, we've said that if when Indian people migrate, they bring too many of their family with them. What a mess. So I think you, that to get back to uh, being a, a level government, I do feel that you, you probably do need to go to the country and get, a, get an election, get a mandate, get somebody in power for four years. And while we're clinging on at the moment with Liz Truss, it just doesn't seem a, a credible option. And Andrew, just quickly before we go to the news uh, with, with Emma, you were at a conference uh, in the Netherlands uh, this week that this was a city-focused uh, conference as well. And it was inter- you had an observation that on one side, uh, you know, again, cities have to get on with you know, all of the hot topics that we're dealing with today, migration going into cities, uh, how are we going to deal with uh, potentially a cold winter? And then there's also, I guess we're often coining a sort of the, the luxury problems, uh, which are you know, an area of focus and, and also something which probably annoys uh, many voters um, as well. What's that sense of, of the city, the city you know, being able to kind of go beyond uh, politics uh, at, at a federal level that a city can forge its own way globally, despite uh, what maybe the, the administration on, on top says or how it's behaving? Well, you see that a lot in Europe, especially because many of the, the big cities in Eastern Europe, for example, they have liberal leaders, whether that's Istanbul, whether that's Warsaw, whether that, that's Budapest, and they sit surrounded by countryside, which is, is much more conservative. So these mayors are working in, ta- in tandem or in, in, in unison, rather, in a much more important way than with their, their central governments. And often, for example, the, the government in Warsaw has a, has a really bad relationship with, with, the, the, with the national government. So it really does have to kind of go its own way, literally with the, the mayor going to the US to try and find funds to support Ukrainian refugees, for example. So they're not even often debating these issues with, with central government. So I think the, the, the grittier places in Europe, are the, the cities, the mayors are getting on with it. But it is interesting when you, you talk to um, people in the U.S. administrations, and there, the, you know, the, the 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 cultural war is is still taking up so much of their time and concerns. And again, you you speak to a mayor from Eastern Europe, and not that they they don't respect what's going on in the U.S., but they're like, look, what the great thing is, that the key issues that people are debating in 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 the U.S. You know, should you carry a, a gun? Uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, that these, these are just not even topics on the table in, in many European cities because those issues have long been resolved or are not, or not culturally present. So they're focusing much more on day-to-day delivery of services and how they do that in a way that is engaging for all, all, all sorts of people within their cities. 
Andrew Tucker, Editor-in-Chief in London. Uh, if you're around, maybe you're going to make some toast. You might uh, join in on the discussion uh, about the art market uh, in about 14 minutes' time. Uh, it's just gone 10.31 uh, here in Zurich. Emma Nelson is back in London with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Chinese President Xi Jinping has told the Communist Party Congress that his country has achieved comprehensive control over Hong Kong, turning it from chaos to governance. In his speech marking the opening of the once-in-five-year gathering in Beijing, Xi also defended his controversial zero-Covid strategy as an all-out people's war to stop the spread of the virus. A fire has broken out at Iran's notorious Evin prison, with footage posting online showing flames and smoke billowing from the area. The prison was blacklisted by the US government in 2018 for serious human rights abuses. The Tagus Anzeiger in Switzerland is reporting that hotel managers in the country are struggling with energy bills. According to a survey by the industry association Hotellerie Suisse, if energy prices triple, more than half of the companies surveyed will have to close their doors. And rail passengers who love a quiet journey, especially overnight, will be delighted to hear that scientists in Vienna are developing a programme to detect and to remove noisy trains. A research project at the University of Applied Sciences Technicum Wien will use artificial intelligence to identify exactly those axles that create nasty screeches and squeaky wheel wheel rumbles when trains roll past. Those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Okay, Emma, question for you. Now, we know that uh, your, your family, at least uh, your son, uh, likes to uh, build uh, full working replicas of aircraft uh, fuselage in your living room. He but, does. But how, how does he feel about rail travel? If, if Emma said, look, we're going to head off to Austria, there was a ma- there's a magical new overnight train uh, that, that leaves uh, from St. Pancras, uh, would he still be sort of you know, trying to drag you to Heathrow or, or would an overnight uh, train delight as well? Let me tell you how granular my son gets with trains he every time i go on a train i now have to take a photograph of the train to tell him what kind of rolling stock it is and the departure point and the other points he is obsessed with trains and planes it's i'm not entirely sure how healthy it is but i'm happier than 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 doing guns and bombs um but it it first the, the love first fell um the love first came when he was three and we traveled from i can't remember i think it was salzburg to dusseldorf overnight we put our car in the back of the train and we had these wonderful moments when you had these lovely crisp sheets uh, on, on overnight rail jet and they bring you breakfast and you can have a little shower and it's just amazing. And he went into school the next day and they were, they were playing with trains and, and, and he put his car on the train and the nursery teacher went, you can't do that, cars don't go on trains. And he goes... I think they do. So we have a profound and deep love of anything transport infrastructure. Does that does that does, yeah, does that think, inspire think, you, Tyler? Yeah, it, it inspires. It, it answers the question. Uh, and let's hope that the likes of of ÖBB, the, the, certainly the the federal uh, Austrian uh, rail company, uh, are able to get uh, some rolling stock to, to launch overnight services. Because I have to come to London tomorrow, but it's you know it would be great. If, at, I don't know, midnight tonight, uh, you could just take a slow train that would get you into London at, at 7 a.m. It would be absolutely magical. Now, of course, that's happening uh, in, in many European cities, but it'd be, it'd be wonderful if London uh, could soon be linked the same way. It, it, it opens up the world in an amazing time. And actually half of the fun there, wouldn't you say, is planning it, is looking at the timetables and seeing where they're going and just thinking, oh my goodness, Paris, Milan, that's a possibility. We can do that now. I, I love the way that Europe is opening its trains back up again.
I, I can tell. There's, I, I, I think I know where your son gets it from. Uh, we might uh, check in with you before the uh, the end of the program. It's uh, just uh, 1035 uh, here in Zurich. We're going to head to Berlin in a moment, but I just wanted to pick up on a story that we were touched we touched on a little bit earlier. Priska, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to to set it up for us, but uh, uh, there's, uh, yeah, I, I was even being contacted by, by various news outlets on Friday that we have one of the political parties here in Zurich uh, is asking for, for the city and maybe at a cantonal level uh, to stop promotion, to stop promoting Zurich as a great place to live, a great place to invest for people to, of course, uh, open their their headquarters here. And again, there's always this ongoing, yeah, I would say, sort of tug of war as well, which is interesting when when you read your paper and others. How many businesses uh, are leaving Zurich? No, and this is not leaving the country. They want to go to another, uh, yeah, they want to go to another Gemeinde, to another municipality, uh, which has maybe more uh, attractive tax rates, etc. So there's this ongoing push, but maybe set it up for us. It's the S, it's the SP. Uh, for our listeners who don't know the SP as a party, uh, where, where do they stand um, and what are they so angry about? Yes, the SP is the largest uh, um, party in Zurich. It's uh, Azuk is practically run by the SP, um, and the president of the of the local SP asks um, to to cut the the budget on the Zurich Greater Area. Um, this is a marketing uh, operation to promote Zurich abroad for companies, especially. So Zurich pays two hundred fifty thousand francs per year to this company it's not so much actually and uh, they say that it's not necessary because Zurich has been promoted enough we have reached a level of expats living here taking away the affordable living space it's actually about this the the the, the whole problem for the SP is that um, people uh, can't afford to live here because um, expats take away the the, the apartments so um, and the other um, point they ask is that uh, the airport is no longer uh, expanded, no more new runways. Um, so, And it's a bit weird because um, the companies, as you said, some are leaving, but it's still an, a very attractive place to, to live and work. And this is also due to projects that were able to be uh, made by the SP um, due to the tax income, which has increased every year since in the last 30 years. So it's a bit confusing, the mm. whole whole aspect. It's very much focused on the apartment situation and it leaves a bit out the whole um, tax income uh, and due to the tax income, being able to to make Zurich such a great city to live. Mm. It's been it's a bit of a sort of a left liberal luxury uh, story, which is something which uh, yeah, this place has a habit of also producing in a very nice way, of course. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I understand some of the sentiment behind it all. I mean, there is an issue of high prices of housing that is getting more uh, less and less accessible and more and more inaffordable um, but then we should talk about exactly that not about some symbolic politics of whether one should advertise for Zurich and particularly the idea to let's say restrict transport capacities um, to make Zurich less attractive so people have to struggle for the remaining flights that's just very bizarre I mean if anything there's there's other ways to to limit that kind of transport well, more more night trains right wonderful <laughs> I I'll, I'll take one in a in a few days actually um, so it's a bit of a symbolic debate 
as a political scientist, I always take slight offense when we don't talk about the real issues, but talk about symbolism. Um, and generally, the idea of an attractive city for foreigners, of having a mix of languages, and not just having English, the global language, but loads of others in the city is actually enriching, that makes it beautiful, given it's a city of half a million people, which is tiny, it gets this international flair, it gets the appearance of actually being bigger. And that's the ultimate goal. And ideally, we we as Zurich, as a city, compete with these kind of factors rather than just dumping taxes, which is what others do. Um, so to have this global outlook, this global perspective, to be multicultural in a way, have affordable housing for everyone, that should be the goal, not talk about whether we should restrict transport or do a bit of less advertisement. Symbolism doesn't get anywhere there. In, indeed. Uh, maybe uh, we we might have a gentleman on the line who might have a view on this, at least the Berlin uh, view, even though he's not in Berlin uh, today. I think we're catching up with him in Sussex. Uh, Christoph uh, Ahmed is the editorial director of Zeit magazine. Uh, what on earth are you doing in the UK? But but maybe before that, <laughs> I, I, wa I want to know, this obviously has to be sort of a classic discussion as well when we think about affordable housing. And, and we've seen yeah. the, same, the same discussion as well. I mean, just the onslaught of tech entrepreneurs, tech billionaires buying up property uh, etc in, in in Berlin uh, does this sort of ring as a bit of a, a familiar uh, narrative uh, to you as well it does indeed uh, the situation has been uh, quite dramatic when it comes to the housing market uh, in the last couple of years um, uh, on the other hand I couldn't really imagine that the local government uh, stopped promoting Berlin because Berlin needs tourists uh, more than uh, so uh, I was quite was quite surprised about the symbolic debate of Zurich. In, indeed. Um, so, okay, let's get back to the core question here. So Christoph Ahmed uh, just has a thumping new uh, issue of uh, Zeit Magazine's international uh, edition, which is uh, almost weighing our table down here. But uh, why, why, why are you in Sussex? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm spending the weekend with friends here. Um, uh, I've actually been to London uh, at the end of the week. And, you know, we have this kind of sort of a little bit troubled situation with our ample coalition, the, the traffic, so-called traffic light coalition in Germany. Then I, I arrived uh, uh, at the end of the week in London only to, <laughs> to realize, well, England has a bit more profound problems in their coalition, in their government. Um, but I was actually going to see the last concert of Roxy Music uh, in London on Friday night, which was really amazing. I mean, it was in the O2 arena, uh, I think about 20,000 people in the audience, the whole of London. I, I saw, you know, many people from the music industry, art, other musicians, Bobby Gillespie, I ran into um, playing and listening to, yeah, probably one of the, the greatest bands uh, that England uh, ever had. And, and this was a private pursuit or or is there going, is will this somehow uh, manifest itself into the pages uh, or, or certainly uh, the digital sphere of Zeit magazine? Well, yeah, I will definitely write about it in my newsletter. You know, I write a daily newsletter, so the next edition will be uh, written on, uh, tomorrow. So I'll be definitely uh, letting, sharing, sharing those moments, sharing some of those moments with the readers of the, the Zeit magazine newsletter. So, as I said, we're, we're um, everyone around the table here, we're all holding copies uh, of your uh, wonderful new um, international issue. So uh, for those listeners who are familiar, this is it's it's a it's it's really, truly a piece of print as it as it should be. Um, it is your 20. 
223 edition. And it has the tagline, uh, the Berlin State of Mind. Um, and this, just uh, for those who aren't familiar, this is, it's really uh, sort of a compendium of, of, of top, the top stories mm. that have appeared in the magazine, but then I guess reformatted slightly. Uh, and, and again, on just uh, the most, you know, a wonderful sort of luscious uh, backdrop as well. Yeah, it's it's sort of our annual best off um, English, and um, we had this idea like nine years ago when when uh, the the French New York based photographer Brigitte Lacombe was in Berlin, and I had lunch with her, and she basically said very kind things about our weekly Tide magazine issues, and she, and she said, "Well, I wish I could read them," and so I thought, well, you know, maybe she's right, maybe we can do something about it. So, so every year we, within the team, we sit together, we kind of review of what we've done throughout the year and then put together sort of the best stories. And it's, it's quite of a, a crazy experiment because, you, you know, it's, it's not only 260 pages, but you also find, I think, about 20 cover stories um, put together in one issue. Quite sort of a, but, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really happy about the issue this year. Um, lots of exciting stories. And uh, yeah, I love the paper of it as well. The format—it's—it's it's really sort of an object. And there's there's many fantastic things, but I, I will say this is uh, as it's a challenge for for every editor uh, who has to, of course, who works with uh, with the luxury market, luxury advertisers. Is how do you portray watches in in an interesting way? <laughs> and you've uh, you know there, there's so many sort of. I don't know, bowls of caviar, you can drop a Patek into it, etc. Uh, but here you've, um, you've got these amazing illustrations uh, by, by Emma Roulette. And it's, uh, it's just these <laughs> watches on the backs of, of toucans or parrots. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's really, really wonderful. Um, and that was, that was something just Thank out of you. interest, something that was pitched to you, or, or this is something that was sort of you know, drummed up in a story meeting? Yeah, it's it's uh, we we every year we we do what we call the tre the the watches treasure hunt with our readers with the weekly magazine. So we always come up with sort of an idea about places uh, in Germany, and then we kind of uh, in touch with illustrators uh, to to actually uh, uh, produce the, the spread. Well, it is yeah. absolutely it's 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 a, it's a it's a stunning issue. Uh, I, we're going to let you get back to your your tea and uh, and and toast, uh, but it's always great to check in. And uh, I should say that uh, Zeit Magazine, uh, the international uh, issue, almost three hundred pages on newsstands, uh, maybe not quite all around the world yet, uh, but certainly on on better newsstands uh, very very soon. Absolutely extraordinary issue. We're going away for a short break. When we come back, uh, we'll be heading up uh, to Finland, and we'll also be talking about free. Stay with us. Monocle has launched its own brand new book imprint with the help of our friends, esteemed publishers, Thames and Hudson. First to bookshelves is the handsome Monocle Book of Japan, but with a host of new titles coming your way. And don't forget our existing library of travel guides and large format books covering everything from making better cities, creating resilient businesses, and the power of hospitality done well. It's a lineup created to help you find inspiration, great ideas, and some sunny escape routes, whatever is happening in the world. Visit monocle.com to find the perfect additions to your collection.
You were back with Bodicle on Sunday. Uh, just 11.46 uh, up in Helsinki, 10.46 here in Zurich, 9.46 uh, in London. I'm very happy to say we're joining our correspondent on the far side of the Baltic. Petri Burstoff is there for us this morning. Good morning, Petri. Good morning, Tyler. From a rather uh, rainy and overcast Helsinki, I think I need an assignment in the med pretty soon. Okay, okay. well, we can work on that. Kitos uh, for, for, for that. Uh, if we were uh, to open the pages of, uh, of Kaupoletti or Helsingin Sonomat uh, or to tune into Ylle uh, uh, this morning, uh, what's making news uh, on, on your side of, uh, of the Baltic? Yeah, so in Finland, the kind of the key news recently has been um, the Prime Minister Sanna Marin. She's in in hot water again. You, you know, you might remember her uh, scandals, partying scandals, a couple of months ago. Um, now she uh, basically um, has agreed to speak at Slush, which is Europe's largest uh, startup festival, which we also have covered on Monocle. And and she announced that she would appear in an interview carried out by a representative of a private equity firm where her husband uh, works and her critics were quick to point out that you know this is a rather obvious conflict of of interest uh, here that you know prime minister is lending her popularity and status to to kind of promote her uh, husband's uh, firm um, and you know a couple of days later um, i think this was on on friday or saturday uh, the prime minister announced that um, you know she would be actually appearing alongside a representative from another business not her husband's private equity firm so this has been one of the key news stories in finland uh, just uh, maybe uh, let's stay um, in uh, well a little a little bit uh, closer. Maybe sort of uh, looking a little bit uh, south uh, southeast from uh, from where you are, because this is maybe a story of not not of personal um, concern. Because I might be sort of past the sell by date age wise, but as an Estonian passport holder, uh, there's a, you have a conscription uh, story uh, which is happening. So uh, do I need to polish my boots? <laughs> Well, uh, it, it, it might happen, you never know, because Estonia just announced uh, on Friday uh, that they, they want to hike the number of people called into military service uh, uh, from um, current, w- the number is currently just over 3,000 every every year, and they want to hike that to 4,000 by uh, 2026 uh, in, a, in a move to, to boost their active military reserves, which is, uh, according to the Defense Minister Hanno Pevkur, this is a reaction to the war in Ukraine, where we all know the reserves, uh, the military reserves really played a a key role. Now, um, Estonia has a um, compulsory military service, uh, but it's not really universal. So, you know, uh, it's only about half of the uh, 18-year-old male population each year. So, Tyler, you might be off the hook here. Okay. Well, listen. You know, if if there was a call up of some sorts, I'm sure I could do uh, comms or something uh, for for the Ministry of uh, of, of Defense in in Tallinn. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, it, it's been interesting these past few weeks, Petri, because there was so much focus uh, around the the elections in Sweden. Uh, what that, of course, meant uh, for for the Sweden Democrats and 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 certainly the party, or well, certainly uh, the government's uh, swing uh, back to 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 the right. Uh, now we have uh, what looks like a, a a functioning government in place. Yeah, that is that is correct. Um, so the the uh, Ulf Kristersson, the leader of the uh, the Conservative Party, the Moderatena, um, announced um, this week in a press conference that they do have a functioning government, uh, a right wing government. But interestingly, the Sweden Democrats were left out of this government, uh, which means that it is a minority government. But that said, the Sweden Democrats, a, a far right um, sort of anti-immigration populist party, it will still support. The 
the government so that they have a parliamentary majority. And this means that the uh, Sweden Democrats actually, you know, they, they do wield considerable influence over the government's uh, uh, policy program. And we can, we, you know, we saw in the program how Sweden will um, introduce tighter uh, immigration laws and, and direct more uh, police resources to uh, areas uh, plagued by gang, gang violence. So it's an interesting move to still kind of, kind of a Swedish move, if I may say so, as a, as a Finn, you know, they can say that the Sweden Democrats are not in the government, uh, that we are a proper country, but they still, you know, <laughs> they, they, they can have a lot of influence on the government's policies. Indeed. Just before we go, a story which will be of, of appeal to, to Ben or many of our listeners, uh, which is uh, we've been hearing a lot of, about drones, drones being spotted around oil rigs, etc. But this is a story which which comes uh, from, from the border. And of course, I mean, as we know, uh, border guards up and down uh, Finland, of course, uh, Norway's border with Russia as well. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, security and defenses have been heightened. What's happened, uh, though, on the Nor- Norwegian-Russian border? Yeah, so uh, Norway um, has has announced that they've um, they've arrested two Russian citizens. It was in, it initially it was just one, and yesterday they they announced that they had arrested another one. Uh, basically, we're seeing uh, flying drones uh, in Norway close to uh, you know critical infrastructure. I think one of them was near the airport in Tromsø, and they found photos of army helicopters on the on the guy. The other one was uh, also close to the border. Um, so you know we've seen an increase of this kind of activity. Um, not only in Norway, but as you said, in, in Finland and, and, and also I've read in, in Sweden. So, you know, th- it's interesting also from the point of view that NATO announced this week that uh, if Russia were to strike on key infrastructure, that would be enough for NATO to trigger Article 5 clause of, of collective defense. So we're keeping an eye on, on the infrastructure here. Very good. Petri Burstov, uh, our correspondent uh, for us in Helsinki. Kitos, thank you very much for that. Just Benno, very quickly. Uh, is this, um, would you say, state-sanctioned, state or, or are these just people who, who went to an electronic shop uh, and are, are flying around hobby drones? That is honestly hard to tell. It depends on the incident. And that's exactly what the Kremlin often plays with. As in, we all remember the Salisbury incident, to call it an incident, where two random tourists were key to look at the church. But obviously they were ended up being... Um, Russian intelligence service. So this ambiguity is exactly what they do. In this instance, we can't really tell, but generally I would assume some Russian intelligence service activity around there. Mm-hmm. Well, time for a little bit of not just geopolitical intelligence, but also art intelligence as well. I'm very happy to say that uh, Aurelia Rauch is here. She's the creative director for Bergos Bank, uh, one of the banks, which is a, a neighbor down the street uh, as well. You're just from Freeze. We're going to try to get Andrew. Uh, I believe Andrew has also joined us uh, on the line, but we want, well, good morning, first and foremost. Good morning, Tala. Hi. We're before you got here as well, we were talking about the disco that was here last night as, yes. as well. But uh, anyway, at least seven. you were able to arrive for the show at 10.53, 10.54, which is, which is good. Uh, your assessment uh, of, of Freeze, last day, of course, uh, in London. And uh, yeah, uh, the mood, the feeling, and also, you know, you're dealing with clients and, and, uh, and, and we sort of heard sort of mixed views, things flying off the walls, and maybe for others, not so much they wanted to buy. Yeah, indeed. Hi, Talat. First of all, thank you for having me after our little disco last night. Um, I was there for the opening, so I'm not in London, obviously, anymore. And the opening, I have to say, was rather busy. It was really wonderful. After what felt like a long hiatus, even, of course, the fair was happening. But I feel like last year, really, people, you know, still with art fairs in general, were very concerned. And this has picked up again. So everybody was very excited to go and see it, to see wonderful art. 
maybe worth pointing to is that Fries, um, it has a particularity. It is divided in two fairs. So there's Fries Masters that shows work up to the year 2000. And there's Fries, which really focuses on contemporary and living artists. And when we got there, we, we started at Fries Masters. And it was so calm and lovely at you know, 11 o'clock in the morning. And we went over to Fries after about an hour and the line, we could really not even see the end of the line to get in. It was just insanely busy, very vibrant, lovely things to see. I think, you know, the general tendency at the moment is to really showcase art by, you know, maybe so far a bit overlooked living artists and um, a lot of female artists, a lot of, you know, we saw uh, a lot of African-American art, of course, indigenous art. So yeah, a very, a very cool fair. Very vibrant, Andrew. Uh, you're back, uh, and uh, just uh, you were sort of echoing the same thing that it was. Uh, it was. It was a bit nuts. You also said, yeah, a lot of let's say emerging new talent, living talent that has been forgotten as well. Did, did that sort of strike you as the defining narrative as well? Yes, and uh, the other interesting thing, which I'll be interested to hear um, views on, is that there's Paris Plus, which is coming up, which is backed by um, Art Basel, and. There, there was a feeling that maybe some of the galleries had held back more expensive works for Paris. But there's just so many fairs that actually to attend them all and have new artists and new works to fill them all up, I think is a bit complicated. So there was a sense that maybe something was being held back. And was London oddly buoyant because the pound was so weak? That if you were a US buyer coming in with dollars, suddenly things seemed a lot cheaper. And and the reports say that there were a, a much bigger contingent of serious American collectors in town this time. It yeah. Would you, would you sort of echo that lady from the bank <laughs> pound versus dollar and uh, who was out to spend? No, I do. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think uh, that's this is also something that I have heard from a lot of uh, gallerists that were showing there that because. Uh, Art Basel Plus is coming up next week and it's sort of its first iteration. Of course, FIAC is, is a, a fair that we all have been very familiar with in, in Paris of so far. Pardon. I think people are really excited about next week's fair in Paris. Absolutely, yes. But I do think there was a very strong presence of important work. And from what I hear, the sales have been going pretty well. Of you know, of course, there were always uh, yeah the shows that are just expected to be sold out. The second they reach the booth, the work is basically sold, or before even before it reaches the booth. So yeah, it, it, we'll we'll see how next week goes. But I think it was a sales wise. I heard it was a pretty good fair so far. And just very quickly, because we're coming to the end of the show, Andrew uh, and and uh, a sense of, of maybe a tale of two cities, of course, with uh, with with Paris Plus happening. Uh, a real sort of battle between Paris uh, and and London uh, as, as well. Not that one's going to see off the other, but uh, Andrew, did you get this uh, this sense as well? This yeah, momentum around what's going to happen in Paris. Well, well, yeah, I think before it, people were very nervous, but uh, as we're hearing, the, the sales were pretty good, and also the, what gets wrapped around for is you know the Christie's had their huge auction. They got record prices for a Hockney. They they they, they beat their sale um, expectations by a huge margin. So there's just so many other events going on in London. That I think that Freeze is pretty safe, but I think it is going to be a bit more of a divided world over the coming months as all of these fairs, perhaps oddly that Paris may begin to kind of beat out some of the other smaller European fairs. 
in five seconds or less, Aurelia, uh, <laughs> your, your prospects for Paris as well. Do you think this is, uh, yeah, really sort of positions itself as an anchor uh, anchor event? Yeah, I think so, definitely. Very good. Okay, we have to leave it there. Uh, Prince Gavish has Ben Ozog, uh, Aurelia Ruck, Andrew Tuck back in London, also Desiree Bentley looking after the audio for us here. Christoph Ahmed uh, as well for us in Sussex, Petri Burstoff uh, in Helsinki, also to Emma Nelson and our studio manager back in London, Adam Heaton. Have a good, have a good weekend. Goodbye.